This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone, on this uh, chilly old Monday after a uh, wickedly balmy weekend, wasn't it? You know... I didn't really notice. <laughs> oh, it was like that, wasn't it? It was. I, I was just facing eyes with just trying to get through life, oh, trying to like meal I, prep and all that. That I don't I know what it was like. I feel you. Yeah. Um, I did uh, get out a few times though oh. before the wind and the rain right. all yeah. you know, descended on us, mostly overnight. Uh, I have to say, but gosh, to be out around uh, doing a bit of stuff and um, it's like I don't need my jacket. I can do this in a t-shirt. Oh, you know what? I did notice that when I had to go into a car, I wasn't complaining. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess let I me think. No, I wasn't complaining. <laughs> so it must have been good. <laughs> must have been good. Uh, <laughs> that says a lot more about you than right? the weather, or or vice versa. I'm not sure which. But uh, yeah, it was uh, remarkably, strangely balmy on the island. Anyway, I know that uh, parts of Labrador did get a bit of a dumping and. Uh, uh, they uh, have been seeing uh, quite a bit of snow already so far in the season. So um, hopefully that bodes well for Kane's um, Quest. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was sad that it had to be postponed or, yeah. Um, but that's such a hurt. I can't believe people sign up for that. It just seems like it's so tough. Arduous. Yeah. You talk about, I mean, you have to be a certain yeah. make of person. And apparently if you complain about getting in the car <laughs> i'm not that person you don't see me on kane's quest anytime soon <laughs> i yeah i would have to know how to start one up first but i mean <laughs> you know honestly though a world-class event yeah. in labrador it's just uh, yeah amazing and of course there's more and more of these types of you know um high endurance adventure style competitions that are happening lately it's all very exciting it's exciting to watch but I mean, I can only imagine the prep work that would have to go into it and the soul searching because it's not easy. No. I, the complaints coming out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, yeah. You, well, I mean, yes, you you're right. Tough. It's one thing to snowmobile on trails and we have a lot mm -hmm. of room trails in that in the province and uh, people enjoy that or uh, trails that are, you know, tamped down by other people ha going ahead of you but this is you know cutting your own way through the woods and finding the best way yeah to do it. yeah it's uh it's wicked but we dig digress because there's lots and lots of news on the go and kane's quest is still a little while a uh, little while away i'm sure we'll talk more about it uh well the provincial government today announced an 11 million dollar two-year contract to deliver virtual care to those in the province without access to a family physician the service provided by teledoc canada a branch of a u.s-based company that provides services around the world will be provided to approximately 50,000 people currently registered through the Patient Connect program who don't have access to a family doctor or family care team. Well, Health Minister Tom Osborne made the announcement today. Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services has signed a two-year contract with Teladoc Health Canada to provide virtual care in Newfoundland and Labrador. The approximate annual cost is $11 million. Teladoc Health Canada provides services in Canada and around the world, including partnering with public health care systems. Teladoc will now be offering technology and physician services 
in Newfoundland and Labrador. This service does not replace local doctors, including family doctors or physicians working in urgent care centers or emergency rooms. This virtual care service will complement existing services, improve access to the overall delivery of health care, add services to uh, people where needed, where they are in need of a family physician. For emergency rooms or urgent care centers, this virtual care solution will keep facilities open and ensure patients have a place to go when needing care. Patients will be seen by a physician on screen and will have a local healthcare professional with them to complete physical exams and triage. The virtual physician will work with the on-the-ground staff to deliver care as needed. For patients who do not have access to a family physician and are on the provincial wait list, like Patient Connect, the virtual care solution will provide access to a physician virtually. This will be delivered through an online application web-based service or phone. There will be both on-demand and appointment services. When the physician determines that a person will require follow-up services, they will work with Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services for in-person care. Our recruitment is working. We remain competitive in a global market. We have recruited over 70 physicians since the start of this fiscal year. We've recruited over 300 nurses. The first site for the new virtual emergency room will be the Kittywake Health Center in New West Valley. Currently, there are our local physicians who are covering the site, and Teladoc will step in when needed. It will expand to other communities that need the service in the following weeks and months. In recent weeks, you may have heard of questions being asked about pay. It is important to know uh, to note that the contract requires that Teladoc not recruit or engage physicians who are actively practicing in the province. It requires virtual physicians to be members of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Newfoundland and Labrador, and also members of the NLMA. We will pay virtual care physicians at rates that are in line with pay that physicians are receiving in this province in line with the M uh, MOA with the NLMA. This is a significant step forward for healthcare in our province. What this means is emergency departments can remain open, people will get the care they need at the closest emergency department or urgent care center and not have to travel as far or to another community. Patients who are waiting for a family care team will have access to a physician virtually. If in-person care is required, it will be available. So that's a little of what uh, Tom Osborne, health minister, had to say today about this uh, new um, contract signed, $11 million two-year contract to deliver virtual care to those in the province without access to a family physician. Uh, when we come back after the break, we'll hear what the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association has to say about that. This is News Talk on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. 
And we are back. Well, you heard what Health Minister Tom Osborne had to say about a new deal signed with Teladoc Canada to provide virtual care services to patients without a family doctor. Well, let's hear what the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association has to say. NLMA President Dr. Gerard Farrell joins me now. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Farrell. Good afternoon. How are you? Great. So the provincial government has announced this uh, $11 million two-year contract with Teladoc Canada to provide virtual care services. Um, what's the NLMA's um, response to all of this? Um, virtual care in the context of the RFP that the government announced is a necessary stopgap measure to try and get us through a situation where we don't have enough family physicians or other healthcare providers, to be, to be perfectly honest, uh, in this province to take care of all of the folks that we have here. So as a stopgap measure, it's it's interesting. The I think you said it was $11 million uh, is a new number to me. It wasn't one that I'd heard before. Um, and the fact that they've prescribed it as being for two years is good because it would not be a long-term solution to the problem that we're in. But as a stopgap measure, it's certainly one of the things that might help out. Are you concerned, though, um, with this deal that it may extend beyond two years at some point uh, or that it may draw from, uh, you know, services that we currently have? I have concerns in both areas. This is, as I said, as a, as a stopgap measure, as a short-term, to use the government's own words, band-aid solution. It's certainly one of the options that we have available to us. Uh, I would not, I would hope that the government does not see this as a long-term solution because I don't think any of the practitioners see this as a long-term solution. Um, and with respect to the to the to the pilfering of, of physicians and other healthcare providers from the community into this new service, I know that we've had uh, reassurances from government that there's wording in the contract that says that that won't happen. Um, we, I have not seen the contract yet, so I, I can't I can't delve into what that wording exactly says. Uh, but if this turns out to be either a long-term solution that are seen by government as a long-term solution, or if that uh, anti-pilfering um, provision is not uh, robust enough, then this could become problematic. Are you hopeful that, uh, or do you realistically anticipate that uh, any uh, staffing shortages, especially as it comes to um, um, physicians, can be addressed within the, the, the term of this two-year contract? I don't. I don't know that this is necessarily. You know, this is this is not going to address the the, the the shortfall that we have in practitioners. This is one way of glazing over, of bringing additional resources to try and uh, to try and fill some of those gaps. But it's it's not a it's not a long term solution. It's not a personal solution. You know, calling someone up on a phone, someone you've never met before, is not a viable alternative to having a family doctor who knows you, even if you are calling your family doctor up on the phone to get to get some care. You know, it, when you've got a family doctor, you've got someone. Who who knows you? You know that person. You develop a relationship. They know what your what your goals are, what your what your values are. They know what your problems are. They can put you into a, into a context that makes virtual care provided in that in that kind of an arena uh, an adjunct to care. But but to to think that you can replace uh, the 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 the, the backlog in family doctors that we've got with a, with a phone number, it, it can't be done. You know, 811 is not an alternative to a family doctor. And I don't think this virtual service is an alternative to a family doctor. Is it a stopgap measure? 
perhaps. We'll see as it rolls out. But as a long-term solution to the fact that we have we don't have nearly enough family doctors in this province, uh, this is not going to fix that. So what are some of the additional, uh, I suppose, limitations of virtual care? I mean, I think about um, going to a doctor and one of the first things they do will be to take your uh, blood pressure or your pulse or listen to your heart and lungs, those kinds of things. Uh, Will any of that be possible through virtual care? Um, It's okay. Virtual care, when you take it as a, a, if you you want to take it out of the out of the context in which we're talking about, there is there is the opportunity to deliver a significant amount of care virtually, and you know we we got dumped into that. The medical community and 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 the healthcare community got dumped into that during COVID, when when all of a sudden everybody was locked down and we had whatever we could deliver, we had to try and deliver virtually. There are some things that lend themselves to virtual care. Um, but there are other things you just can't do by virtual care. I've got a rash. Well, you can't really do that by, by over the phone. I've got a lump. You can't really do that over the phone. You know, there, there are things where you need to lay hands on with a patient. In the context of a relationship between a family doctor and uh, a patient, then there's a lot, you know, it, 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 ex- it expands the capacity for virtual care to augment the relationship. But at, at the end of the day, virtual care is just a tool. And it's not necessarily that the tool is, is a good tool or a bad tool. It's the context in which you use the tool. If you're using the tool in the context of a of a physician-patient relationship that's been ongoing for a period of time where both sides know each other, then it's certainly more valuable than, as I said, someone I've never met before calls me up and begins to tell me their life story. And I've got to try and sort out with this person whom I don't know what's going on with them and what, what the best course of action is for them in that context. Virtual care is just a tool. It's, it's where you use the tool and how you use the tool that determines um, whether or not the tool uh, is going to be helpful or less so. Dr. Gerard Farrell, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And of course, Dr. Farrell is the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association. Well, the provincial government has announced the creation of a policing transformation working group. Justice Minister John Hogan today announced the creation of the group at the rooms. Here's what Hogan, RNC Chief Pat Roach and RCMP Superintendent Pat Cal had to say. Policing in this province dates back as far as 1729. And this location here at the rooms, sitting atop Fort Townsend, holds great significance in our historical policing context. Originally the headquarters of the Newfoundland garrison, this location eventually became home to the constabulary force of Newfoundland. Historians point to this pivotal moment where an opportunity was seized to transform Newfoundland from colonial status to independent nationhood. And today, we are seizing another opportunity, one that will seek to modernize policing in Newfoundland and Labrador. Policing is an important part of the fabric of our society, and emerging trends and issues here at home and across Canada have put a spotlight on the future of policing to ensure these services are meeting the needs of our communities. Just last month in Quebec, I joined other justice and public safety ministers for discussions regarding policing and crime in Canada, and in particular, the need for change. I left that meeting knowing that we are so fortunate in Newfoundland and Labrador to have two policing agencies in this province with whom we have a great relationship and who are willing to work together to discuss and review the way we do policing in our province. For that transformation to happen, we need to start asking ourselves, how can we best recruit, retrain, and retain officers? How can we incorporate new technology to enhance public safety? 
How can we best deliver services across our vast province? And how can we strengthen oversight? Other provinces are asking the same questions. And in light of that evolving dialogue and the growing complexities of policing and crime, now is the time to evaluate our province's current policing model. Today, I am proud to announce our government is launching a policing transformation working group to review all aspects of police services in Newfoundland and Labrador. This working group will evaluate the current policing provincial model to ensure Newfoundlanders and Labradorians receive the most effective and efficient policing service possible and to meet the needs of our diverse communities. It will be led by an executive with broad senior-level government experience and will include individuals with extensive operational and strategic expertise in policing. I want to thank RNC Police Chief Pat Roach and RCMP Chief Superintendent Pat Cal for being here to welcome and speak to this significant announcement today. They and the organizations that they represent join me in recognizing that the future of policing services is important to public safety throughout our province. There are over 1,000 police officers and civilian staff in our province. And as a government, we have the utmost respect for those who put the personal interests and safety aside and come forward to protect others, including the most vulnerable among us who often cannot protect themselves. There's no question this review is going to involve a lot of hard work. And that's why it's important to point out that the working group will be supported by the recently established 10-person policing and crime prevention unit within the Department of Justice and Public Safety. This unit is comprised of public servants who are dedicated to enhancing the safety of our communities in our province. Throughout this work, our diverse communities, groups, and individuals will have the opportunity to help inform and guide our working group and play a role in advancing its work. During the review, we remain committed to ensuring our policing services are effective, efficient, and structured to best serve all residents of our province. I look forward to the future, the opportunity that lays ahead of us, and how this transformation will enhance the safety of residents in our province. I welcome Chief Superintendent Pat Cal to speak on behalf of the RCMP. The RCMP welcomes and fully supports a policing review and has recommended it in our ongoing discussions with the Department of Justice and Public Safety. This review will complement work that has been actioned at multiple levels across the RCMP to ensure we are moving forward as a modernized and effective police organization that meets the diverse needs of our communities and is equipped to respond to the changing nature of crime. This is good news. Such reviews have and are occurring in other jurisdictions in Canada and can be very informative and impactful in ensuring the right police resources are in the right places to deliver quality policing services. The highest priority for the RCMP and our dedicated and skilled employees who work throughout this province is to ensure public safety for the people and communities of Newfoundland and Labrador. We welcome and fully support a policing review and look forward to being actively engaged throughout the process as we work toward our shared goal of sustainable and, modernized, and a modernized policing model that ensures public safety for the communities and people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Thank you, Chief Superintendent Cal. And I'll ask uh, Chief of the RNC, Pat Roach, to come up to say a few words. As already stated, this review is certainly welcomed by the leadership of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. 
this review will, uh, will shape the future of policing in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador and certainly will improve the services that we already provide here. While a review can oftentimes have negative connotations, I see this as a, an opportunity for the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary as well as for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I believe this review will help show the complexities involved in policing and showcase some of the challenges our staff across this province and Labrador face every day. We have worked hard to build relationships and develop a policing standard that the communities can, uh, we serve, can serve or can rely on. I would encourage residents, service providers, community organizations, and advocacy groups to participate in the review when given the opportunity. I look forward to what the review committee can have, will recommend. And in the meantime, we are focused on our continued growth within our organization. So that was RNC Chief uh, Pat Roach, you just heard there. Uh, before that, Superintendent of the RCMP, Pat Cal, and uh, John Hogan, Justice Minister, about this uh, Policing Transformation Working Group announced today. If you have any thoughts on that, you are welcome to give us a call. Well, coming up, we'll hear more about a recent survey of Atlantic Canadians on the topic of debt and the number of people who are uncomfortable discussing their personal financial matters. And uh, of course, we have Christmas upon us and uh, people who are uh, struggling to get by or struggling with their debt usually find this a very uh, stressful time. So we'll hear what uh, uh, BDO President Nancy Snidden has to say about uh, dealing with debt, talking about your debt, and uh, coming up with solutions uh, when things get a little bit beyond your reach and control. So uh, we'll hear more about that coming up right after this. News Time is next with Noah Shepard. This is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we are back. Well, a recent survey by BDO shows that nearly two-thirds of Atlantic Canadians prefer not to talk about their financial issues, and that uh, that number rises dramatically to 89% among those already struggling with debt. Among those who find it most difficult to discuss financial matters, uh, many say it's difficult to admit they can't afford their grocery bill, while the majority of participants say they are overwhelmed with credit card debt. President of BDO and host of Your Money on VOCM Nancy Snedden joins me now. Hello Nancy Snedden. Hello Linda, how are you? Good. So, um BDO put out this debt stigma survey some time ago about uh, some of the um as you put it emotional challenges and stressors that Atlantic Canada- Canadians are facing as they grapple with their debt. What's what's the current sort of situation when it comes to people struggling with debt? Yeah, there's definitely some concerning statistics that came out of our survey. Uh, the survey showed that the majority of Canadians at 56% are finding it challenging to talk about their debt with their family and friends, and actually even more so than talking about relationships, which was only 51%, and believe it or not, even higher than medical concerns, which were only 43%. And of those concerned about their debt, Linda, nearly three in five at 58% prefer not to discuss it with anyone or find themselves unsure about who to really confide in or, or what they really should be doing. And as you mentioned, the Atlantic Canadian numbers are actually even higher. 
So among Atlantic Canadians, those who find conversations about finance is most challenging. Nearly two-thirds at 63% prefer not to talk about financial issues. And for those that are struggling with debt, it's even more difficult. So 9 in 10 at 89% are finding it difficult to talk to even their family or friends about their concerns. And more than half of 59% who have debt admit that they are worried about their current debt situation. Also, nearly one-third at 30% openly admit that they have no plans to discuss their debt with anyone. And that is concerning for me, Linda, you know, simply because if you're carrying that stress, if you're carrying uh, that load, that burden yourself and not talking to anyone about it, it can lead to so many other things, right? High stress, high anxiety, which can, you know, lead to Uh, physical health issues, other mental health issues. It can lead to uh, reduced job performance. It can lead to problems in your relationship. It's really a snowball effect. So in talking to these things with someone, whether it's family, friends, or a professional like myself, is really, really important. So what prevents people, it sounds like people are suffering in silence, what prevents them from reaching out or admitting, you know, I got a serious problem here. How can I fix it? Yeah, I think for many people, you know, they think that they got themselves into the situation and they're embarrassed, right, that they're finding themselves with uh, with this debt load. But, you know, most of the time, especially in today's world where we've got, you know, increased interest rates that no one could have predicted 18 months ago that we would have such a high uh, increase in interest rates, I mean, the average person, right? And also the cost of living is higher than we've ever seen before over the last 18 months. So people were already stretched. You know, we talk about For years now, we've been talking about half of Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck. So when you're living paycheck to paycheck and your finances are stretched, sorry, as they are today, um, it's not your fault. And you're certainly not alone. There's so many people out there. We have record levels of insolvency rates in this country right now. We have record levels of increased debt in this country right now. So you're not alone. And the sooner that you talk to someone to get a solution, right, to help you deal with the stress that you're feeling. Um, the better you'll be. So what are some of the contributing factors? You just mentioned, of course, the cost of living uh, increased (laughs) phenomenally. Also, interest rates going up. Um, But uh, what is contributing to the debt? Are people relying more heavily on their credit cards, for instance? Are they spending on credit cards more than they should? Um, Do people's, uh, are people's credit limit, is it higher than it, it should be? I mean, what are some of the things going on there? Definitely. So it's a mix of all of those things, right? So we've got people who are turning to credit to supplement their income because they are finding it more difficult to pay for the things that they could pay for 18 months ago. Now, they were living paycheck to paycheck and they never had a lot left over at the end of the day. But now it's harder for them to even put food on the table. You know, I hear stories of people who are making a decision on, you know, will will they pay their light bill or will they put food on the table? Will they go to the food bank uh, this month? We know food banks are at a record time high. Um, And I don't think that it's people overspending, Linda. Like, I don't think that people are using their credit for things that they shouldn't be. I think it's simply a case right now where so many people are supplementing their income for everyday living uh, and turning to credit to do so. And most of these people are using credit cards, which, you know, at 20 and 25 percent interest is uh, is significant. Is access to credit uh, too easy? So that, that's something that I've grappled with for a long time. I think, you know, when you're originally applying for credit, 
the checks and balances are in place, right? You know, you go through a credit check, you go through uh, a questionnaire where you need to put in information about your income and, and all those things. Sometimes, however, when you're you know, looking for an increase in the balance of your credit card, they're looking at your credit history as opposed to your current income, right? That check doesn't happen at that stage. So I do think that there are times where people are getting increases to the credit they have already where, you know, there should be more checks and balances on. Can they really afford to pay back this debt if they have used it all, right? So if you have $20,000 on your credit card and you have that maxed out to $20,000, are you going to be able to pay that off? And I think in some cases, the answer to that is no. Right. Or you're going to be paying interest for the rest of your life and never seeing a decline in the balance. So I think we could use some more checks and balances uh, in all areas of access to credit, not just the initial application. We're heading into Christmas now, and this has been a a stressful period for a lot of people since the pandemic in particular. Uh, What are some tips as people contemplate, you know, the the coming weeks and, and those pressures that are on them? Yeah, I think you need to budget. Right. We talk about budgeting all the time. And I say in the show, uh, you know, your money, um, you need to really look at your budget more regularly than ever. And we always recommend a Christmas budget. But I think this year, more important than ever, that you're making that budget, you're including everything that's part of your Christmas expenses. So the additional food that you're going to need to buy, the, you know, gift wrap, the presents themselves, like if you're entertaining, like what does that look like? And if you're going out, is there other things that that's going to increase uh, your budget? And you're really plan for that. And as you're doing your shopping, whether it's your food shopping or your present shopping, uh, you're, you're making sure that you're sticking to that budget, right? And you're not buying things outside of of that budget and certainly don't increase credit um, with Christmas unless you're sure that you're going to be able to pay it off in one to three months because otherwise you're incurring significant amounts uh, of interest to do so. And people, I mean, as you say, people are supplementing their income with credit if, you know, with Christmas upon us, some people will say, well, I've got no choice but to use my credit card. Yeah, I think you just, you want to have some, you know, hard conversations because I can tell you that if you're struggling and you're looking at Christmas and going, how am I going to afford this? Many other people in your family and friend circle who you may socialize with or buy gifts for uh, this time of year are feeling the same way. So maybe think of ways that you can get together that are less expensive for everyone. So maybe you're doing some potluck so people are sharing in the cost. Maybe you decide you're not going to give gifts this year. You're going to actually just spend time together, right, with family and friends and save the budget, limited budget maybe that you do have or the credit that you do need to use on those where it is more important. So we all, we all always want kids, right, to have something under the tree at Christmas. There's a lot of community groups, too, that if you're struggling financially, you can reach out to for support. I know Single Parents Association, Credit Counseling Newfoundland and Labrador, they always have Christmas drives um, for gifts, right, for families who, who can't afford to get something for their kids under the tree. So make sure you're also reaching out to community resources um, if you're in that boat. Salvation Army, VOCM Cares, the lists go on and on. There are groups out there to help out. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Nancy, um, you mentioned right off the top that, uh, you know, your survey found that a lot of people are, are struggling in silence. So what's the first step if, if things are getting too much? Reach out for help. 
So, you know, speaking to a licensed insolvency trustee like myself, there's no obligation, right, to proceed with a consumer proposal or uh, a bankruptcy. What it means is that you're talking to a professional who can weigh all the options, right, who can give you the best advice, even if it's coming up with a way to pay down your debt yourself without a formal insolvency filing. Um, It's so important that you just have that conversation. And I can't tell you how often people come into my office and from the time they come in, you can see the stress on their face. And by the time they leave, their shoulders have dropped, just knowing that there's an option available for them, just knowing that someone has listened and have provided them with the advice that's personal to their situation. You know, talking to family and friends, it can make you feel better knowing that you're not alone and maybe they have advice on, you know, what worked for them. But talking to a professional really personalizes it for you because no two people's situation is the same. And so it's always important that you're getting the best advice. And I can tell you, not just because I am one, but because I really believe that licensed insolvency trustees, because we're regulated by the federal government, because we go through an extensive education program to get licensed, we really are the uh, best people to talk to when it comes to debt. And I wonder, though, uh, you know, when people do come to you and they're contemplating their future and what, uh, you know, can be done, what are some of the concerns there? Because uh, um, let's say, for instance, would a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, um, do people have fears that it's going to uh, impact their access to credit or um, make them unable to uh, keep their homes or um, will it affect future job prospects, for instance? Yeah, we hear all of those things, Linda, right? I didn't reach out before because I I wanted to make sure that I could keep my house and I thought I would lose my house if I had to file a proposal or a bankruptcy. Or, you know, I thought you would take my car or, you know, all those things are are legitimate fears for, for people when they don't have the information. Right. Um, But your assets are protected in a consumer proposal as long as your payments are up to date with any secured creditor. So if you have a mortgage and, you know, your mortgage needs to be up to date and, and you keep it up to date with the lender, there's no risk to your property at all when you're filing a proposal or a bankruptcy. And I think it's important for people to understand that. And that's why I say, you know, reaching out, you'll you'll actually get the right advice. Sometimes you can read information on the internet and sometimes it's misleading or it's not what would happen in your own personal situation. It's more generalized. So having uh, the conversation with a professional to really understand what it means for you is always the best option. And, you know, people often think that they want to consolidate and they'll call us and say, you know, I want a consolidation loan. And we'll talk them through what, a, what happens in a proposal. And, you know, I guess in, in general terms, a consumer proposal is like a consolidation, but it's not a loan per se, right? There's no interest involved. It's usually for a fraction of your debt as opposed to a consolidation loan, which has interest involved and is for the full amount of your debt. Um, and so consumer proposals range anywhere from, you know, maybe eight cents on the dollar up to, you know, 70 or 80 cents uh, on the dollar, depending on your own personal situation. So it is important to make sure that you have uh, have the facts. You know, most people will say, Nancy, you know, I wish I had contacted you sooner. Uh, I didn't realize this would be so easy. Uh, or they'll say, you know, I, I didn't understand, right, how this works. And now that you've explained it to me, I can see that this is the right path forward. Nancy Snedden, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, and that was a pleasure. 
And of course, Nancy Snedden, not only is she the host of Your Money on VOCM, she's also president of BDO. Well, coming up, discussing plans for the Masonic Temple in St. John's. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, a couple who purchased the storied Masonic Temple gauging interest from the local arts community on what to do with the historic structure. Morgan McRae and her husband Duncan don't live in Newfoundland, but Morgan grew up in St. John's. She met with artists and performers last week and spoke with VOCM's Jerry Lynn Mackey. For the building specifically, we and my husband and I have discussed this. We, we haven't announced this in any capacity yet. We're really hoping that within a medium term that it be, can become a community asset and not be held in private hands anymore, and that means ours. In order for us to get there, it does need to diversify funding. We'll need community help and support for that, but we do really see this in you know a 25, 50-year kind of project lifespan being something that is really a community-owned asset. So that's the hope and that's the dream. I popped by the temple on my way here to take some photos and have a look and it's wrapped in sheet plastic. There's a sign on the door that says, you know, not open to the public. Give us an update on on the structural work. Oh, it's down to studs. There's nothing left inside. (laughs) There are some walls and things, but we have taken down and preserved as much as we can of some of the beautiful plaster work, some things that really made that building a jewel of the city. Lots of fixtures and door frames and things but in order for us to uh, build a space with the maximum potential and usability of the community we really did have to bring it down to the bare bones so that we can build it back up into hopefully a very functional structure. Were you surprised by how much work needed to be done or was it right on par with what you were expecting? In the remediation process and the kind of tearing it down, for lack of a better term, that process has gone smoothly. We weren't sure when we first purchased the building if it would need to go this far, but very quickly we realized, okay, the HVAC is shot and the furnace is shot and the roof is leaking. So it, it it was very clear that in order to get it to where we needed to be, once we accepted the fact that, okay, <laughs> this is from the ground up, there haven't been any big surprises since then. What's the timeline on the renovation? Less than 10 years, more than three. <laughs> That's the ballpark. But we we are still literally today in, in consultation. We uh, obviously have um, some drawings and some plans, but we're, we, we don't have a building permit yet. We've been talking to the province and to the city and to Heritage and getting lots of advice there. But we might go back to the drawing board again, you know. We are trying to be slow and intentional with this process, but also very very aware that the city has a great need and the community has a great need. So we're, we're not going to just sit on our laurels and let the building sit there, you know, just in limbo for forever. But we are just trying to hit the right time and take our time in the beginning. There is the fact that it 
was a Masonic temple. And were there any surprises in taking it down to the studs? Were there any gems that were found that may have been hidden? Some of them that we've shared so far on our website. If anybody wants to look, we, we've posted some some photos there on the Masonic.ca, also our Facebook page of like interesting things. Like I'm going to call them artifacts, um, like a dance card and some tins and things. The the one big surprise that I just found out about a couple of days ago was that they found the tunnel. Apparently there was this mysterious Masonic tunnel in the basement and we don't know what's behind the tunnel, but we have found, you can actually see where they bricked it in and the actual shape of the tunnel. We don't know where it goes. Apparently it might have gone to a private residence or been an escape route and I would love to know what's behind it, but I, I don't know if, um, if we'll find that out. Maybe to the courthouse. It, it could be to the courthouse. It, I think the side of the building that it's on, it doesn't, I'm, I'm very bad with directions. It doesn't appear to go down the hill. It appears to go um, more towards, uh, yeah, the houses behind. Wow, so a mystery has been uncovered. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe one of the neighbors can tell us, hey, it's like, hey, do you have a mysterious tunnel that leads to your house? <laughs> and they very well could. Morgan, are you living in Newfoundland and Labrador's west coast or are you living on the west coast of the country? Oh, my husband and I live on Vancouver Island. I first planned to go to school um, away for two years and I was going to come right back and as does happen, I, I met a guy. <laughs> and so right now our, our offices and our and our lives are out there. We get back as often as we can and we plan to spend as much more time here in the future. Our children are just very small right now. It's hard to, to pick up two toddlers and travel with them. They're here now with us in the city, waking up at 4 a.m. because of that time change. (laughs) But we're hoping that the community gets used to seeing us and that um, they continue to welcome us back. You know, we wish all the time that Victoria was was just a little bit closer, but I'm an island girl and I just happen to fall in love with a different one. But thankfully, my family is all still here, so I still have lots of ties and lots of reasons to come back. Are you from St. John? No, I'm from CBS. I'm from Seal Cove. So it, it used to feel a lot farther away. Now it only takes a half hour to get to town. It's incredible. But when I was a kid, it was, you know, a full a full hour's drive to come in. So I always felt like I grew up in the shadow of town, right? You was all the interesting stuff was, was happening here. But I was also really a part of a really vibrant community in CBS and in Seal Cove. And it was a really cool time looking back to grow up there. I'm sure lots of my old friends listening to this will remember being referred to just as the CBS Metal Kids. And that was us. And I'm so proud of that. And I'm so, again, just proud to be a Newfoundlander and really thrilled that we found something that we can hopefully continue to give back with. And that was uh, Morgan McRae. Uh, she and her husband, Duncan, uh, purchased the old Masonic Temple. They're now looking at ways to uh, uh, use it if you will, from far off Vancouver and uh, um, had a little meeting with the local arts community to come up with a few ideas and the like. Um, Very interesting indeed. And there's a tunnel. There's a tunnel connecting the uh, Masonic Hall to somewhere. They're not sure where. Wow, that that's exciting to me. Yeah, there's lots of stories of tunnels, aren't there? I mean, yeah, we found out recently about um, the tunnels in Carbonear, mm-hmm. and uh, there's for years there have been talks about tunnels in Harbor Grace, and uh, there's tunnels apparently from the Four Sisters going somewhere, and now tunnels from the uh, Masonic Hall. Yeah, I find that pretty interesting. It is. Well, I mean, when you think about it. Um, 
many years ago because the city of St. John's quite old. Um, you know, what did people do when it came to storage and refrigeration and those kinds of things? Cellars. They went in cellars. They went underground. So, uh, yeah, very interesting indeed. And uh, I know, um, Claudette, uh, I grew up in Montreal, so I have a lot of friends in Montreal, and they are going absolutely off the top, crazy excited about the Alouettes winning the uh, Grey Cup yesterday. Oh! Yeah, the Montreal Alouettes completed a historic turnaround to win the 110th Grey Cup in Hamilton. After an off-season riddled with ownership uncertainty, Montreal defied expectations to upset the Winnipeg Blue Bombers 28-24 in the CFL title game last night after defeating the league-leading Toronto Argonauts a week prior. The Alouettes trailed by 10 points at halftime but rallied with three touchdowns in the second half to topple the Bombers and Brian Medor couldn't have been more excited. More excited than you? <laughs> well, I mean, I was never, I never followed football, right. but it was all around me. Yeah. Uh, growing up, our high school had a football team and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. It's so starting it, to be big here now, too, as Yeah, well, and it's starting locally. to gain some popularity here in Newfoundland, which mm -hmm. traditionally it never really caught on. caught on, we'll say. Yeah. Always been softball. Now it's all baseball and soccer. And rugby. And, and rugby now, yeah, of course. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, um, football starting to build up a little bit. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I just mentioned it because my Facebook feed was just like... <laughs> Go Owls. <laughs> you have to be happy for your friends, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, some of them actually played for the Alouettes at one point. So, uh, yeah, I can understand all of that. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, everybody loves a good upset from time to time. Absolutely. Well, that's it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Uh, stay tuned for the VOCM Morning Show. We'll have lots of reaction to some of the big news announced today. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye for now.